As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn once again to the last book in God's Word, to the end of Revelation chapter 20. That's where we come together this evening. Last week, we talked about how there are four distinct sections to Revelation 20. And last week, we walked through the first two in verses 1 through 6. And tonight, we want to walk through the final two in verses 7 through 15. So let me read those verses for us. I pray briefly for our study, then we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you once again through His perfect Word. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the far corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray once again together. Father, we do ask that you would help us this evening to listen to your truth attentively, and knowing that a day is coming in which you will judge all peoples according to what they have done. So help us, we pray, by your spirit, to have our consciences concerned. We ask that you would also comfort our hearts in the final victory that's ours in Jesus Christ. Let us hear this word, let us keep this word, that we might find the blessing you've attached to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the most popular and influential English congregational preachers of the late 19th century is a man named R.W. Dale. It was in 1877 that Yale University asked Dale to cross the pond to deliver what were the most prestigious preaching lectures known in America at the time. So he came to Yale University and delivered nine different lectures on the subject of preaching. And it was in the second lecture that he commended to all of the students and, of course, all of the faculty there at the university as well. He commended to them the preaching of a man named D.L. Moody, who was the famous and uh, rather stunningly successful evangelist in America at that time. He said that, that Moody had a persuasive power in preaching, that you needed to go to Moody if you ever wanted to cultivate what he called wisdom and power in preaching. Because he said when Moody preached about Jacob, it was as though he had been there that night when angels were dancing up and down the ladder. When Moody preached about Moses, it was as though he had held Moses' hand next to the burning bush 
at Mount Sinai. Or when he preached about the disciples, it was as though he had been in the boat with the disciples when Jesus had summoned them from the sea. But if you knew anything about their theological differences, you could have been a bit surprised that Dale was so effusive in his praise of Moody's preaching. Because they had a very sharp disagreement over the doctrine of eternal punishment. Because you see, R.W. Dale didn't believe in it, the eternal punishment of the wicked, while D.L. Moody did. And later on in his life, Dale said to a preacher friend that he ever only heard one person who had earned the right to preach on the doctrine of eternal punishment. And of course, he said it was none other than than D.L. Moody. And the reason why, according to Dale, is that because every time Moody spoke about hell, he did so with tears in his voice. Because when you come to our text tonight, which is one of the more well-known, more shaping passages about eternal punishment in all of God's Word, you come to a text that many people throughout the ages have used, not wrongly, to warn the wicked, to summon the sinner, to try the transgressor, and we should do that from texts like this, and we must do that from texts like this, but never forgetting the original context was delivered to a small band of persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire, a letter that was meant to encourage them in the midst of their suffering and hardship. And of course, in this room tonight, we come to a text that no doubt is relevant to every single one of us. A text that I'm sure for every single one of us demands some degree of tears upon the voice for which one of us doesn't have a loved one who is destined for the lake of fire. Perhaps it may be a sibling. It could even be a spouse. It may be currently a child or a grandchild. It may be a friend, a close neighbor. You might have noticed, children, as I read the passage, that each one of our two sections, it concludes with this lake of fire. Of course, our country, and even North Texas itself, has many lakes that people love to go see that are destinations for recreation. But what, of course, we find tonight is a lake of fire that no one will ever want to see. And I promise you, it's one in which no one ever wants to swim, but the text tells us tonight many will, in fact, see it. Many will, in fact, swim in it. So the final judgment, it's our theme tonight in our two sections. We'll walk through in this way. First, noticing in verse 7 through 10, a lake of fire for Satan. And then 11 through 15, a lake of fire for sinners. Just to paint some context before you get to verse 7, remember where we left off last week at the end of verse 6. We said the beginning of chapter 20, at least the way I would want you to see it, is it represents yet another vantage point that John has received on the course of human history between the two comings of Jesus Christ, his coming to earth, I'm sorry, his coming to heaven and the ascension and his coming from heaven at the second return, that these thousand years, popularly known as the millennium, I said we're not meant to understand literally, rather it's symbolic for this age between the comings of Jesus Christ. And what was most important, at least in verses 1 through 3, is that we realize it's an age in which Satan is bound. Of course, he can do work, he can do harm, and often does work and harm. But the text tells us he's bound for a very particular purpose, that he may no longer deceive the nations. And so we said that's why the gospel for the last centuries and couple of millennia has burst forth to the ends of the earth. But if you glance back up to verse 3, 
we're told that after the thousand years were ended, Satan must be released for a little while. And I told you you had to hang on until this Sunday to pick up on that text. And that's exactly what we do with the lake of fire for Satan. Notice verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So he now can deceive the nations again, is what that means. Verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations. that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, kids, you never should live in a way in which you have a terrible fear about Satan. For as we're going to mention in just a minute, he's a defeated and certainly conquered foe. But what you need to recognize is Satan is entirely clever. So clever as he is, not he? As he's released and he deceived the nations, notice what happens. It seems as though the entire world is following after Satan. His followers and his soldiers, according to the end of verse 8, are as numerous as the sand on the sea. And we read in recent weeks even how Gog and Magog from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, it represents these nations, the, the array of attackers lined up against God's people. John takes up that theme again here, symbolically used about all those who are going to wage war against the church, all gathering together at the end of the age. How exactly that's going to happen, the way in which it's going to happen, we of course don't know, but nevertheless, verse 7 and 8 tells us, It's going to happen, and it seems as though that Satan lays siege to the church. Look at verse 9. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So remember, in these last few chapters of Revelation, it's very much a tale of two cities. You have the earthly city and the heavenly city. You have the city of man and the city of God. You had the prostitute of Babylon and the pure bride of Jerusalem. So this language of a beloved city is just Revelation's language for all of God's people throughout all the world. It's the church as a whole now under attack by Satan, laid under siege they are. But of course, Satan is what? A defeated foe. Verse 9 continues, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. And isn't that the story of every nation, every government, every satanic entity that wars against God? They rise, they fall, eventually His fire consumes them all. It's once again showing us in Revelation's own way, isn't it, the utter insanity that belongs to sin. For it's always and only placing one's heart Students, it's always and only placing your soul on a path that leads to nothing more than consuming fire, which is what we're told, aren't we, in verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we'll come back, of course, to that idea of the lake of fire in the second section. But for now, just notice that eternality of the torment. Day and night, forever and ever. Possibly the only way I can illustrate that for you is if you've ever seen a movie, read a book, heard a story about someone being burned at the stake and the anguish that always comes from such fire and how people often cry out for death to come quickly, that here is an eternal experience of that degree of torment that belongs to Satan. The unholy trinity, the beast, and the false prophet. 
such as the lake of fire for Satan. It was one of the more well-known events of the Civil War that came in September of 1862 when two Union soldiers were off on patrol. They were walking around in the field and they discovered three cigars wrapped up in a piece of paper. And if you know the story, you know that they quickly discovered that those, or that paper, had a very specific phrase written on it. Special Order Number 191, Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia. What they had stumbled upon was nothing more than the operational plans of the Confederate Army arrayed against them at that moment. So they took the cigars, they took that paper and hurried it off to the officials in the Union Army who promptly bundled that secret knowledge and failed to crush the foe that stood against them. And what you're getting in Revelation, I trust you've seen this along the way, is nothing more than a peek, and it's a pretty detailed peek, isn't it? into God's operational designs and plans against His enemy. Uh, you have seen from chapter through chapter, verse by verse, that God has declared Satan's defeat is certain, that Christ's victory is guaranteed, that Satan's torment is eternal. And I wonder, like many a soldier in an army, if you went into a battle knowing the outcome was assured, I bet you would fight differently, wouldn't you? with unusual confidence and courage. Perhaps even in your own life this week and you're striving against Satan, you might fight with renewed confidence and courage, knowing where he's going is a lake of fire. But I want you to see now in verse 11 through 15, it's not just a lake of fire for Satan, but that same lake of fire for sinners. Look at verse 11. Three things I want you to see about judgment first. The throne of judgment. And I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. A great white throne symbolizing God's holiness, isn't it? His utter purity and majesty as he's ruling in righteousness from that place in heaven. Surely it's right, even though it doesn't tell us exactly to understand this is the Father sitting on the throne in judgment, for he is the one that's always sitting on the throne, isn't he, in Revelation. And we're told that the earth and the sky, it runs away from God's presence. It's this sign of, of kind of a cosmic collision, this conclusion, this climactic reality at the end of the age. But what you really need to picture, and maybe you've seen this before in a movie of sorts, it's like the camera is zooming in on a particular piece of furniture, a particular person, and everything else in the background fades away, because that's what's happening here. Uh, what John is seeing what the Spirit wants you to see is nothing more than a razor-sharp focus on the great white throne. But it's not just about the thrones of judgment. Notice also, verse 12, it's about the books of judgment. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. It's telling us something that Revelation has told us continually, that God's judgment is always deserved. That God never judges someone for anything other than what they have done, what they have said, what they have touched, what they have thought. Everything that you have done, 
will be weighed in the balance of this book, read out in the hearing of all. And verse 13 is meant to help us understand that it really is true. This day of final judgment before the great white throne involves everything and everyone. Notice verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Students, consider the scene then. Time is coming when your name will be read out in heaven's hearing. It's almost as though you'll be asked to stand up, to walk forward, to stand near that throne. And then an angel says, I need John's book. I need Abigail's book. The book's pulled off the shelf. And it's begun to be read. And what is read is everything you have ever done. Everything you have ever said. Everything you have ever thought. And do you think it's possible for anyone to stand before a righteous and holy God on a white throne after the reading of that book and do anything other than fall down on your knees saying, woe is me. There have been times in the past where I've had friends who have found out that their internet history has somehow been discovered. And they have run away in fear because of everything they have looked at and nobody knew about. Well, this book that's going to be read is that for the entirety of your life. Not one single person whose book is read will deserve anything other than a lake of fire for sinners. But the good news is that the text is telling us there are books, plural, aren't there? It's not just the book of the deeds that have been done. It's the book of life, which is none other than what we've seen before. The Lamb's book, in whose His people's names are written down, pinned as they were with His precious and, and perfect blood. The book of your life is read out. All you're going to be able to say is, woe is me. And aren't you going to be so desperate for another book to be opened? And say, hey, John's in this book too. Hey, Abigail is in this book too. And it's not as though these deeds that you have done merit salvation. But what the text is simply telling us is they manifest the salvation that's yours by sovereign grace alone. But notice the lake of fire for sinners. Verse 14 and 15, the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is, of course, the truth about God's final judgment. Now, when I was growing up in the Stone family, one of our cherished traditions was that during fall break each year, we would head down to Fair Park in Dallas for the Texas State Fair. My dad would take the day off, and we would spend pretty much all day from open to close down at the State Fair doing everything and anything, eating everything and anything along the way. And I remember in 1995... As we were heading down to Fair Park, my dad was telling us about something that was going to happen that day because, you see, at that time, in October of 1995, what the press was calling the trial of the century was due to come to its verdict. 
Uh, So later on that morning, we were kind of rounding the bend to Midway, which is where all the rides were. And as as we turned the corner, we were suddenly like grinding to a stop because as far as our little eyes could see, people were everywhere. And it took us a while to figure out exactly what was going on because we were looking around when in reality what we needed to do was look up. Because up there above was this radio speaker. Everyone gathered about as far as our little eyes can see waiting for what? That verdict to be read out. And the great white throne of judgment is saying the exact same thing is going to happen at a universal level at the end of the age. Around the throne will humanity gather waiting one by one, for a verdict to be read out. And it all depends on whether or not your name is in a book, the Lamb's book of life. So simply as we begin to close, let's notice the two essential things that this text, of course, calls unto us tonight. Number one, the truth about the final judgment should alarm unbelievers. An old Puritan pastor wrote a great evangelism manual in the 17th century that was called Alarm to the Unconverted. Because I trust if you're in here tonight and you wouldn't say in all honesty and sincerity that you've truly come to Jesus Christ in faith. There's a time coming when the book of your life will be read out. And it will cause God, the Father who's holy and righteous in His justice, to do anything other than confine you to an eternal gulf of fire that will bring torment forever and ever. So don't let anyone, students, recognize you may come across this in the course of your own life in Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, yes, of course, people will go to heaven and be with God for all eternity, but people who are apart from God, well, they're not going to be judged, punished, made to live in anguish for all eternity. But that's what this lake of fire is reminding us. Torment. Day and night, forever and ever, when you come to the great white throne of judgment, you're meant to have this spiritual alarm bell ringing in your heart, saying nothing more than wake up. Like every parent tries to wake up kids in the morning. Wake up, for this is on the way. So it doesn't just bring, of course, alarm to unbelievers. Doesn't it assure, secondly and finally, assure believers as well? Because this is the great reversal that belongs to all of God's people. Often afflicted in this world. Often made to endure trouble in this world. That the time is coming when Jesus Christ and His perfect goodness is going to right every wrong. He's going to undo all of the sad things. Every affliction that you've ever experienced is going to be swallowed up in an eternity of God's mercy and blessedness. His rest and forgiveness. Can you endure just a little bit now? For an eternity of glory and hope that belongs to those who are found written on the roll of the Lamb's book of life. I have studied the sermons of a British preacher from years ago. I went through a period of time where I read every one that I could get my hands on. And at some point I came to the point where I realized, I think I've read Every single sermon that's ever been published on this preacher. And then I began to read a biography about this preacher. It's written by a very close friend of his. 
And somewhere tucked away in a little end note, that close friend says about this great preacher, his greatest sermon had never actually been published. And so people like me who've read the other sermons and uh, stand amazed at their beauty and their power wonder, what was that sermon like? A sermon that he preached on multiple occasions, one time for over an hour in a cold British rain, had even people stand still and utterly silent before him. And the title to that sermon was nothing other than The Great White Throne. Lost to human history. The Great White Throne. Of course, I pray, will not be lost to the history of your heart. That you might find your conscience awakened. That you might find your heart assured in the justice that belongs to God and to His Son. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would be kind to us in the midst of a text that calls us to soberly reflect upon our state before you. Lord, help us not to assume our standing in Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, you would alarm those of us that are apart from your Son. Your Spirit would also assure those of us who are in Jesus Christ that we might know the joy that is awaiting us at the final judgment. And the declaration of welcome in, good and faithful servant, is what we hear as we make our way into our heavenly home. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.